It's often said that the skill of a truly great journalist lies in their ability to look beyond a story. Any hack can report on Britain's cleanest river, but it takes a journalist of true substance to drink from Britain's second cleanest river. So when I saw that the London Living Travel podcast had got some pretty good numbers with an episode about The Mousetrap, the West End's longest-running play, I thought I'd show what I'm made of by focusing on the West End's second-longest-running play. Mike Browse, the holiday man who does things on his own. As any theatre buff knows, The Mousetrap opened at St Martin's Theatre on the 25th of November 1952. What fewer people know is that in the Ambassador Theatre next door, another brand new play was opening. While the Mousetraps run began at 7.30pm, the play next door didn't start until 7.40pm due to a problem with the curtain. That delay has made all the difference down the decades because remarkably the Mousetraps' neighbouring play is still running, making it the West End's second longest running play by 10 minutes. Like The Mousetrap, this rival play is also a whodunit. The Complicated Murder is a gripping tale of two babies born on the same day who find themselves growing up with the wrong families after their hospitals are swapped. The piece has played to full houses solidly since November 1952, and tonight is a very special night. The 30,000th performance, and I've got a front row seat. As I wait for the theatre to open, I'm just having a look at the play's website on my phone. Lord Bartby, one of the identical twins set to lose his inheritance at Cardigan Manor, still reeling from the revelation that he was born in the wrong hospital, is shocked by the arrival of he and his brother's two sets of previously unacknowledged non-identical twins. The Reverend's announcement of changes to the nature of inheritance and primogeniture in the Church of England sets the household abuzz. Who could be behind the murder of Lady Marlton, who was herself a disinherited twin? Four bodies, 71 suspects, nine detectives. The stage is set for the complicated murder, which the Financial Times called completely unfathomable. The play is also famous for losing its leading lady and leading man on the opening night. This was the West End debut of actress Daphne Wynne as the doughty detective Miss Campbell. At the point in the play when she was meant to unmask the culprit, she froze and stared blankly into the auditorium. Prompt, she whispered, prompt. Luckily, leading man Archie Noon stepped into the breach and said the line successfully resolving the plot. However, given that Archie's character was at this point dead, he was sacked on the spot. As he left the theatre, he yelled from the wings, I didn't want to be in your complicated bloody play anyway. Four effing butlers, it's an effing joke. I'll be back, just you wait, this production is doomed. And pointing at the guest of honour, Princess Alice of Battenberg, he added, And you can eff off as well. And it was all over for Daphne too. She was sacked from the production that night and was never heard from again.
Given the play's 66-year run, there are obviously no original cast members remaining. Indeed, natural wear and tear over the course of the run has meant that all the costumes, sets and props have been replaced many times since that first night. With one exception. The clock on the mantelpiece is remarkably the original from that opening night. It alone has been present at all 29,999 performances. And this famed timepiece has become part of the show's legend. If the clock doesn't take its place upon that mantelpiece, it's believed that a curse will be visited upon the theatre and the show will close. Permanently. I'm in the bustling foyer of the Ambassador Theatre. 30,000 performances, what a milestone. And if you're a theatre buff like me, then you'll know that the Mousetrap celebrated its own 30,000th performance just a couple of weeks ago. Now, I can hear you asking, if both plays opened on the same night, how come The Complicated Murder is two weeks behind The Mousetrap? Well, the sad truth is that the two shows have been locked in a decades-long tit-for-tat campaign of trickery and guerrilla tactics to rack up the most performances. Five years after both plays opened, the Mousetrap's cast learned that the complicated murder had added a second matinee performance each day to bump up the numbers. In retaliation, the Mousetrap added a second, then a third matinee, plus a breakfast run-through for good measure. For the majority of the run, there's been nothing in it between the two plays. One might briefly surge ahead, like when the Mousetrap's assistant director arranged for every member of the Complicated Murders cast to be seduced ten minutes before curtain up. But by and large, it's been neck and neck. This changed, of course, during lockdown when theatres were closed. The cast and crew of The Mousetrap saw an opportunity to inch ahead of their rivals by sneaking into the theatre every evening to perform the play, in whispers, in the dark. Of course, to count as a performance, there had to be a paying audience, so it fell to director Peter Quine to stand on the corner of Shaftesbury Avenue at 7.25 every evening, ready to press gang the first pedestrian he saw. Once Quine had done them with the cosh, he would rifle through their purse or wallet and extract exactly one pound, thus making them a paying customer. Then, they would be dragged unconscious into the theatre where they would remain bound and gagged for the remainder of the performance, apart from the interval when Quine would force-feed them a chalk ice. By the end of lockdown, the mousetrap was 40 performances ahead of its rival. Now, after decades of tit-for-tat, poison balloons, double-speed line reeds, bomb scares, and even the digging of a large hole covered in leaves outside one stage door, the two productions remain locked in theatrical combat. The current state of play is the complicated murder has reduced the deficit by 10, and the performance score stands at 29,999, with the mousetrap 30 shows ahead on 30,029 with no sign of tired legs at this late stage in the season. I'm in my seat now, ten minutes before curtain up. It's a pretty full house for this milestone performance, and the great and the good are out in force. I can see Andrew Lloyd Webber berating an usher. 
Lionel Blair over there trying to get himself out of an overcoat that I can only assume someone else buttoned him into. And yes, that's Dame Maggie Smith hastily chewing down a box of fried chicken. Must have missed a tea. Ah, curtains going up. Here we go. Oh, something's going on. There's no clock. The clock has gone. The caster looking at the mantelpiece. Where is it? He has completely thrown them. And yeah, we've got some security guards coming into the auditorium now. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Well, the theatre managers come on stage. They've cancelled the performance. He says that the clock was there when setup finished five minutes ago, so it must have just been taken. And going by the discussion coming from the stage, it seems that the most likely culprits are the cast of The Mousetrap, hell-bent on preventing the complicated murder from reaching tonight's milestone. You know, it's, it's actually getting a little bit tense in here. Lionel Blair's out of his coat. He's ripped up a seat and he's thrown it at the stage. As a mob of enraged theatre-goers prepared to storm the neighbouring theatre, a thought struck me. The mousetrap starts at 7.30pm, but their stage door is at least 400 yards from the rival theatre. No one would be able to steal the clock and make it back in time for curtain up. It must have been an inside job. I leapt from my seat fell over Felicity Kendall, apologised and darted through the unattended side door. Well, you know, the backstage gloom of a theatre is a different world. Bare brickwork, a few discarded cans. Whoever took the clock must have come through here and... What's that? This cigarette smoke drifting from the corner there. Who smokes indoors now? Hello? Hello? Yeah, stop! Stop! I have a podcast! I rounded the corner and found myself in front of a crowd of people, the cast and crew of the play discussing what to do next. As I scanned their ranks, I saw a cloaked figure making its escape behind them. With a frantic, stop that cloak! I lunged through the thespian ranks and made a grab for the fleeing figure. My right hand clamped around a skinny upper arm, and I had my prey. Ladies and gentlemen, I have captured your clock thief, and I can announce it is none other than Archie Noon. But then I heard a thin, papery voice. You have foiled my plot to bring a curse upon this play, which has done so much to, um, prompt. Grudge against the complicated murder? Dramatic tendencies? Poor memory for lines? It was the 1950s first night line forgetter, Daphne Wynne. Myself, the cast and crew retired to the immaculate drawing room set. Daphne Wynne, now 95, had composed herself and was seated regally on a leather wing-back chair as I stood centre stage. Yeah, 
you can prove nothing, Prowse, she said. I was simply rehearsing a line for a new play. Au contraire, Miss Wynne, I said. It's a fact that your first night dry-up destroyed your career. My rudimentary investigations have revealed that you in fact spent the remainder of the 50s and the whole of the 60s standing outside matinee performances announcing the name of the murderer to everyone in the queue. In the 70s, you were spotted circling the culprit on billboards. And if the cast would like to study my smartphone, I can reveal it was you who has spent the last 12 years incrementally worsening the reputation of this show with a series of dryly dismissive online reviews. You moved to enact your ultimate revenge, but the same affliction which blighted your West End debut has now unmasked you. Hardly proof of a crime, is it, Prowse? She purred. No, Miss Wynne, I agreed, and with a flourish added, but I can still see the clock in your bloody bag. As the theatre's security staff led the criminally inclined nonagenarian away, I made my way back to my seat. With the clock found, the show must go on, and I had a performance to watch. Well, unfortunately, I got back to my seat and found it was taken by Maggie Smith, I pointed out she actually had her own seat, but she said there was chicken grease all over it now, that she was a dame, and she'll sit where she likes. As I walked away from the theatre, I bumped into an elderly gentleman shuffling along the pavement. Many decades had passed since his heyday, but Archie Noon's profile was unmistakable. He smiled and said he'd loved the theatre, and once... He was an actor. In fact, he'd appeared in this very play. He said his memory wasn't so good these days, and asked if I could just run him through the plot. Of course, no problem, Archie. Basically, Lord Bartby is told about the swapped hospitals by his college friend Toby Finch, who isn't his twin but looks very like him. The vicar is his brother and his wife, the real one I mean, knows about the deeds to Cardigan Manor, the fact that they don't exist. The only other character who doesn't know this is the tennis girl, Flinty, and the action switches to South Africa, where Flinty is revealed to be the unacknowledged daughter of Lord Barkby Senior, whose wife was also called... Look at me, Archie. Flinty number two is married to a private detective who's allergic to salmon. And interestingly, that's what's Thank you.